This is Eric Peterson, program producer for KGPR. On March 15, 2023, the Great Falls Public Library hosted Montana historians Thomas Minkler and Ken Robison in a discussion of Tom Minkler's new book, Montana, A Paper Trail. The book reveals the history of Montana and the Northern Plains through Minkler's collection of rare documents, letters, photographs, and artwork. I am happy to share with you my book called Montana Paper Trail, which is a narrative on my collecting history of Montana over the past half century. I didn't even think I was a half century old, but I am. And uh, you can see by this kaleidoscopic patchwork quilt cover that uh, the subject covered in the book are broad. And uh, initially I would like to thank uh, Susie McIntyre, the director of the Great Falls Library, and Millie Whalen from Cassiopa Books for instigating this, uh, this talk. And uh, I'm also very appreciative of sharing the stage with my good friend, Ken Robison. And uh, Ken is, uh, I used to think Larry Lynn Peterson, if you know him, was the most prolific artist on Montana. But I think Ken, how many books do you have? A few. 15, 15 or 20, but he turns them out and there's another one coming fairly soon. Uh, Ken is the uh, historian of the Overholzer Research Center, and the and I can never get this straight. Uh, the Great Falls Cascade County Preservation Committee, and as as a, a writer of nonfiction, you have to rely on a, a team of people, not only in production but in in uh, making sure you're writing the facts that are correct. And so we have, uh, uh, we go to different people, to uh, uh, different scholars to do this. And I, I don't know how many times I called Ken during the last five years when I was stuck. And you want the answer right away. You don't want to wait another day because you're writing that right now. And Ken, I don't think he ever missed a phone call, and if he did, he called me back right away and, of course, he answered the question. This his, the historian has the noble task of being the custodian of memories of the human race. He remembers for us all that needs to be remembered. And this so personifies uh, Ken. And Ken, I thank you for sharing the stage with me. It's been my pleasure and uh, goes on. Ah, <laughs> now this is history. This is my granddaughter, Michaela, on the right, wearing my mother's 
wedding dress from 1939 when she was married uh, in Bynum, Montana. They wouldn't marry them in Shoto. And uh, it's just precious. Um, and she's in the audience. And she's in the audience. Want to raise your hand? <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you. Um, she was born before the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which most of you probably know was women's right to vote. They, they gained the right to vote. I mean, imagine that. It's just uh, phenomenal. And many times over the past seven years, um, we, we, we would be talking on the phone and the most off-spoken term she ever used was, is your book done yet? <laughs> and this is five years ago, four years ago, a year ago, seven years ago. But anyway, bless her. Um, Thank you, Mother, for your unconditional love and support. And I'm also pleased to uh, acknowledge my wife, Abigail Hornick Minkler, whom I uh, rightfully uh, dedicated my book to with her patience and fortitude and a cocktail every once in a while when I was done. Okay, I have to read this, otherwise I'll goof it up. I have a self-diagnosed affliction, an addiction, if you will. No, it's not alcohol or drugs or any other uh, nefarious happenstance. It's simply a passion for collecting history. I look back at this image of this five-year-old boy celebrating his... Uh, fifth birthday in Cutbank, and I noticed this large cutout western town. Um, and I remember that well, playing with it when I was five. And don't be persuaded by the smile on this uh, innocent kid. Uh, this is strong evidence of the dawn of a lifelong addiction. I began collecting, like many boys, uh, arrowheads, coins, stamps, baseball cards, uh, you name it. I, I collected it. And uh, later, I went to the University of Montana, and I uh, became engrossed with classes on Montana history, particularly those taught by... Uh, K. Ross Toole, and he was my early mentor. And um, I moved to San Francisco thereafter, and I became employed by a company called Berger and Evans, and, and they sold uh, historic items, uh, paintings, uh, historic documents nationwide to museums and uh, private collectors and libraries. And it was here that I received my PhD in this uh, world of uh, antiquarian stuff. <laughs> Collecting such items has often been uh, 
aptly referred to as an unruly passion or a uh, gentle madness. I like, I prefer the latter. Back in 2015, I decided to organize my collection and I created a catalog uh, in three weeks of 220 some pages and hundreds of illustrations. And um, I looked at it and I thought, since I'm in Montana in the summer, I could, uh, I think I could write a book in three months. How'd that go? Well, I went back to New York and uh, it didn't happen. But, but seven years later, I was a, a little short on time. Um, I produced this seven pound, 440 pound. 459 illustrations, 440 pages, 459 illustrations uh, tome. And uh, it's a narrative on the history of uh, Montana and the Northern Plains. Uh, the epigram here is in one of my books by Thomas Marquis, published in 1931, A Warrior Who Fought Custer. And it really sets the tone for the book. And if I may, if you have a good heart for a brave Indian, the same as for a brave white man, you will like this book. Go ahead, Kim. Thank uh, you. Tom, uh, you're not going to tell us, but, but I'm going to force you to tell us. Where did the name come from? Montana Paper Trail is such a fantastic name, but it's not necessarily an obvious selection. Who, who, who came up with the name? Did I or you? No, I did, I think. I think we both did, probably over a really good bottle of wine. Yeah, no, I, I think it was just this paper trail. You think of yeah. a paper trail, you know, that, it leads it's, you it's, it's from perfect. one section to the next. Yeah. And, and that's uh, definitely what that is. Go for it. Um, I'll talk more, too, if you ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the frontispiece uh, for the book. It's uh, Heavy Shield. He was a, a pagan chief, and it was uh, painted by Vinold Rees, and uh, Rees was a German-born American modernist artist, and uh, Lewis Hill uh, hired him, the son of J.J. Hill, hired him in the maybe the 20s or 30s somewhere, I, I think in the 20s, but uh, he ended up, um, what do I say, uh, pushing the Great Northern Railroad by his portraits of the Blackfeet were placed uh, for about 40 years on, on uh, calendars. So uh, he, they used him to promote uh, uh, and you know, Tom, behind every one of those Reese paintings was a great story. In Heavy Shield's case, he was the son of a, a very prominent uh, chief of the Blackfoot, and he had um, he had the honor of capturing a rifle without either injuring the subject of his capture or having to shoot him. Um, it was a Cree native and uh, it's quite a story and this younger heavy shield that Reese painted uh, 
had story after story about the exploits of both uh, himself and, and especially his father during the 1800s. Yeah, and his backstory is phenomenal. Um, he has a mountain named after him, and it towers over a jealous woman's lake in Glacier Park. So each chapter, I uh, had my thousands of letters. Uh, I photographed the signatures, and uh, these signatures um, are affixed to the the uh, face of each chapter, and they show the characters that are featured in each chapter. So there are eight chapters and there are eight pages of these. This is chapter five. I have often been asked uh, what my favorite item is in my collection. Uh, it's impossible to bring out one. So. I have, uh, I collect more than four items, uh, four categories, but I'll just do four categories here and I'll uh, uh, discuss a, a few of the, uh, of the categories and a few items in each category. And this is a letters and document category. And physically holding a letter in one's hand, knowing the letter was written and touched by the person of the historical import, who recorded their thoughts on paper and whose words influenced and or made history, that can be a magical, mesmerizing experience. Without letters, there would be no recorded history, and they hold the potential to rewrite history. So we're in trouble for the future with email replacing letters. <laughs> Very much so. This 1867 Upper Missouri River Steamboat Letter I acquired in 2001. And it was a letter of introduction from Abel Farwell. And the letter was passed in the sort of a watery uh, Pony Express fashion from one steamboat to the other. Uh, you can see the one steamboat up here, and then they passed it to uh, the steamer there. And uh, he was, Farwell was being introduced to drop him off at the mouth of the Milk or Muscle Shell River to build Fort Peck. And Missouri River steamboat letters are extremely scarce, and... Um, I purchased the letter even though I couldn't read the signature down here. So I filed it away in my steamboat uh, collection. And about 10 years later, I was probably reading a book on Fort Benton by, by Ken or, or something. And all of, the, all of a sudden, the name Campbell K. Peck jumped out. I went to my archive, and I pulled it out, and sure enough, I solved uh, who the author was. You know, there's so many people today that I'm sure just associate Fort Peck with the massive dam that closed navigation on the Missouri River, much to the chagrin of Fort Benton. But there was the trading post Fort Peck that 
this is talking about. This is setting up a, a trading post with the uh, Assiniboine and Grovant and so on. But the most important part of that letter, in my mind, is not setting up Fort Peck, but it's the name A or Abel Farwell. Farwell went on from that to several years later. In fact, it was May of 1873 when he set up a, he was in a trading post across the medicine line up in Canada trading with the natives. And that's where the Cypress Hills massacre occurred at Farwell's trading post. Farwell testified against the Fort Benton traders that had been charged by the British government, by the Canadians, for their shooting of, of Canadian natives. And they had a big trial, an extradition trial in Helena, and the only one they could get to testify against them was Abe Farwell. Well, Abe Farwell's credibility was not great at that point after years of, of living in the area, and the judge dismissed the five uh, extradition uh, prisoners and sent them back to Fort Benton, and there was a big celebration. They named a saloon after the extradition five, and Farwell later tried to settle, resettle back in Fort Benton, came up with uh, a very, very hostile uh, northern Montana crowd and had to move down toward, uh, toward the Crow, Crow country around Billings and later basically committed suicide, his very tragic life. Over to you. So, Ken, I, I proclaim that this is the only known Campbell K. Peck letter in existence, and is there anything in the files? Oh, I, I, I suspect you're right, especially from a steamboat. There may be some institution, some place that has something or other from Campbell Peck, but I'll bet it isn't written on a steamboat coming up the Missouri River. Yeah. Those really are rare letters. Was Peck and Dupree a steamboat line? Was it a, like the Block B? I, I don't think so. I don't think they had a, a steamboat line. They just had a trading post. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. yeah. You mean at Fort Peck? No, just on the river. At what? Oh, I just on the river. I thought they had a steamboat. When they ran a bunch of steamboats. Yeah. Well, steamboats came there, of course, but I'm sure they were Powers or Bakers or were a friend in uh, South Dakota, um, Colson. This letter is an, literally it's a national treasure. Uh, I can't even put into words. I'll try to. Um, how important this letter is. But uh, we all know uh, who George Armstrong Custer is. And uh, today he's a devil, and in some circles he's a saint. And uh, I like to stay neutral. I like history to speak for itself <laughs> instead of emotion. So on May 1st, 1876, seven weeks before Custer led a two-pronged fatal attack at the Little Bighorn with 
700 soldiers and over 10,000 men, women, and children, the largest native camp ever uh, conglomerated on the, on the plains. He penned this remorseful letter to President Ulysses Grant in the anteroom of the White House. Custer's direct testimony during the infamous trading post scandals of his Secretary of War, William Belknap, and he also implicated his brother, Orville, uh, led President Grant to fire him. So here he is appearing on May 1st in the White House trying to get an audience with the president, but the president won't have anything to do with it. Now you have to know that Custer was dressed in full regalia. He was a, he was a star, as was Grant. He was probably even a bigger star than Grant at this time. And he was just snubbed by Grant. So Custer sat down in the ante room after being snubbed and wrote down this letter and had the adjutant general give it to Grant. And if I may, I'll, I'll read this. And it, it was a, a letter, hopefully, that he, Grant, would reinstate him with the, with the campaign. Today, for the third time, I have sought an interview with the president, not to solicit a favor, except to be granted a brief hearing, but to remove his mind certain unjust impressions concerning myself, which I have reason to believe are entertained against me. I desired this opportunity simply as a matter of justice and I regret that the president has declined to give me an opportunity to submit to him a brief statement with justice to himself as well as me emanated. Respectfully, G.A. Custer. So, very poignant, very well-written uh, words. I mean, the, the words just leap from the page of, uh, of a gentleman. But Custer's firing meant that he was not only losing his command, he was losing his standing and his purpose in life. Only a small percent of historical letters possessed powerful content that held major implications to one of the 19th century's most noteworthy and infamous events. Grant later reluctantly restated Custer to lead his 7th Cavalry, but his rebuff most assuredly was in part motivation for his untimely death march in order to regain his reputation, linking this letter to his rash actions that day. It is ironic that in writing this letter, Custer was indeed signing his own death warrant. You know, there are a couple of uh, interesting ties to, to this area with, with Custer's death. 
the 7th Infantry had been stationed at Fort Shaw, just west of here, with a company at Fort Benton. In that company at Fort Benton for several years had been Lieutenant James Bradley, who spent the long winter nights interviewing and chatting with people like Alexander Culbertson and Joe Kipp and all the old uh, traders, uh, both uh, native and, uh, and white, and he'd acquired a, a pretty massive knowledge of history. In fact, most of what we know about Fort Benton from the 1840s, 50s, and early 60s come from what James Bradley recorded. So when the Sioux campaign in June of 1876 began, Colonel John Gibbon with his 7th Infantry was sent south to join General Crook and the Dakota Column and other units, including Custer. Lieutenant Bradley led the 7th Infantry's mounted infantry. They were a bit like cavalry, a lot like cavalry. They were horse-mounted. And the day after Custer's death and the death of his men, Lieutenant Bradley and his mounted infantry arrived, and they were the first to discover the massacre and the scene. The other tie to this area is that when Custer left Fort Abraham Lincoln at today's Bismarck, right on the Missouri River, his wife Elizabeth, or Libby, remained in the household along with several maids and cooks and servants, two of whom were Maria and Mary Adams, both young African-American ladies. So when the news came back to Fort Abraham Lincoln, the sad news and Libby had to vacate army quarters and go back to her home, she had to let the Adams sisters and the other help go. The Adams sisters got on a steamboat. They heard things were booming in Fort Benton and they came up the river to Fort Benton. And their story, as many, many tentacles, we're not here to talk about them, I'll just let you know, two really powerful figures in, and they figured in a number of ways in the Custer story, uh, because Mary had actually gone with Custer and the Seventh Cavalry on the expedition to the little, to, to the vicinity of the Little Bighorn. She stayed with the steamboat far west but she was on the scene the night that General Gibbons gathered his um, commanders for the last meeting and so on. So there's a, a lot of history that ties in with this area, even though it's down on the little big bighorn. Yeah. And you'll notice below here is the original railroad pass for Custer during that period of 1876. And I also might add, uh, I, I do a lot more of my collecting uh, this material in the book, but I think it took me 38 years to buy this letter. And there were numerous deaths, one of them being a good friend of mine. 
But uh, anyway, it's, uh, you have to have patience. Thomas, have you ever had the handwriting analyzed? You know, that's a good idea. Um, I would love to. I, I think there have probably been some. I, I don't know of anything, but I'll research it and get back to you. <laughs> oh, this is my baby. <laughs> so, you, how many of you know of who James Kipp is? Dave, keep your hand down. <laughs> Not too many, I mean 10, 15. Well, James Kipp was born in 1788 uh, in, uh, around Montreal, and he died in 1880, so he lived a very good life out on the upper Missouri River, which was a lot tougher living in Great Falls today. But uh, um, he was evaluated by... Um, a scholar on the fur trade of the Upper Missouri River, Dr. Raymond Wood. And I met him too late. He was from the University of Missouri, and he passed away, unfortunately, during my book. But he was the scholar on, uh, on James Kipp. Um, but he wrote, I feel that Kipp was the single most important figure in the Upper Missouri fur trade, save for Mackenzie. Mackenzie's early role, but I feel Kip surpassed him. This tintype pictured here, now a tintype is maybe three and a half by three inches, so you get that in perspective. This tintype is the only image known of, of Kip, and also this tintype is his only known personal possession. Because when he retired, he moved to a little town north of Kansas City at the ripe age of 75 or something, and he wanted to sit down and publish his 40-year diary from the Upper Missouri River. And his house burned down. Everything burned down. The diary and Dr. Wood again says, he says, regarding this diary, the loss of his Upper River Missouri diary was potentially the most significant ever written by a participant in the fur trade. Uh, it's, I can't even say how big of a tragedy it is. It was. Um, now, Kip was an architect. He was a master builder, and he was an architect, and he built at least five posts on the Upper Missouri River. And not most importantly, but maybe most importantly, he built Fort Pagon, which was the first post in Blackfoot country. And what, what? what uh, 1831. 1831, but what's the? Oh, the, the Marias, the combined. The, the, the Marias, yes, yes, yes. And um, Kip married into the tribe and in doing so, he married the daughter of Matotope, which Bodmer's big, uh, the great image of Bodmer with his feathers, uh, he married his daughter. And so he had an in with the Mandan tribe, but he also learned to speak Mandan uh, fluently. 
And when, um, when the uh, Catlin expedition, George Catlin, the American artist, came up into the upper Missouri area in 1832, and the following year, uh, Prince Maximilian de Weed in 1833 came up with his, uh, his artist uh, that he sponsored, uh, Carl Bodmer. These, uh, he was able to, uh, Kip was able to get those two iconic artists with all the artwork that they have done. He was able to make introductions and get them into ceremonies that they never would have, uh, and make introductions that they never would have been allowed uh, with uh, someone else. And uh, the artistic, uh, the artistic output of Catlin and Bodmer on the Mandan and other native tribes was a direct result of, of Kip. And I consider that of being Kip's major, uh, uh, what do we say, major... Founding achievement. Yeah, major achievement in his life. And we all know of Catlin and Bodmer, and Prince Maximilian was an ethnologist. And 1832 and 33 was way before the, you know, the, there were fur traders and a few other um, Euro-Americans around. And I guess to put it another way, can you imagine our knowledge of, of the, uh, all the tribes really, but let's say just stick to the Blackfoot, that uh, if, if Bodmer had not come up to the upper Missouri into Blackfoot country because of James Kipp, there'd be no Bodmer paintings. We'd, yeah. we'd have we'd have a blank sheet for knowledge until later artists like uh, John McStanley and Gustavo Soho in the 1850s, 20 years after, 20, more than 20 years after Bodmer and Catlin were uh, presenting the natives before there was really any white influence in the area. So hugely important. And, and if it hadn't been for Kip, we might never have seen those scenes. So he, under the hopefully photo. he'll he'll re play a larger role and become more known um, now. Um, in, interesting enough, the Kip name has a personal uh, uh, connection to uh, my family here. My father was a boxing coach in Cutbank in the 40s and 50s, and uh, he coached Matt. Uh, Max Kipp, who became a Golden Glove champion. So that's kind of... Do we look alike? <laughs> so how did you find the photo? This photo? Yes. So can we go an hour and a half? <laughs> you walked into a bookstore. Where, where better could you okay, go for... Okay, I'll try to do this without stumbling. In 1982, uh, I had a habit of going down to Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York or wherever for an annual international book fair. And after the book fair, it was dealers from all around the world and I would do my buying and meet people and et cetera. And afterwards, it so happened to be in Los Angeles, I would go to book dealers. 
and uh, Millie, I don't know where you are, but uh, back then there were probably at least a hundred book dealers between San Diego and Santa Barbara, and I mean major book dealers. So I walked into a, a gentleman, uh, I call him uh, not an icon, but he was a major book dealer named Glenn Dawson. And I'm a kid, and uh, he's, he's a senior, he's been in the business, and his father was in the business for 50 years. And I, I say, do you have any Montana material? And he takes me over to a, a cabinet, and he opens a cabinet, and he hands me a, a folder like this. And I look through the folder, and that's in the folder. So how did you recognize James Kipple? Well, I, you know, 50 years ago, I wasn't, uh, you know, as well-developed historically as I am now. And, uh, but I did know him. It, had that image been published and you'd seen it somewhere? It had been, it was in uh, James Roller yeah. Schultz's yeah. book. So it was the only image, and yet there was the original that original image is absolutely amazing. And Tom was, after it had been there for many, many years, lots of very knowledgeable collectors, no doubt, had gone Scholars through that same Montana writers. file yeah. and not spotted it, but Tom Winkler did. So why did I get this, Johnny Come Lately, 1984? It had been there since Charles Kessler collected it from him, from William Carey and the postmaster for Kip, why was it, why did I get it? And the price was just a knockout. $87.50. But don't go, wow, in 1982, that was a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, but uh, anyway, I, it's, it's, I guess we could call that a miracle. Okay, we should all know who this guy is, uh, the emotive tintype of Chief Joseph and John Armstrong, taken in 1878 in Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma Territory, just shortly after the Nez Perce Valiant escape from one-armed O.O. Howard, and he made it up to... Uh, to Northern Montana, but was captured, of course, and they put him in, uh, they put all the Nez Perce in, actually in jail. It wasn't jail, but it was horrible conditions down there. So, young Armstrong, on the, uh, on the retreat, had lost his mother, two sisters, and several cousins, and then at the, uh, Battle of uh, Bear Paw, his father was shot, and he died four days later after they came to Indian Territory. And I got all this information uh, from Nez Perce scholars. Uh, I think I've owned this for 30 years. Um, and uh, now an orphan... Joseph held great sympathy for this young boy and said, 
You are my boy now. You have no family. And I think that's just one of the striking photographs of the West. And knowing the backstory with who that young man was. We are in rare books. Okay, I don't mean to brag here, but these... Uh, oh, go ahead. The, the, there are five books that I'll show you just briefly, and I consider them the most important rare books on Montana. And my library has the only five in private hands, except for the Yale Beinecke Library in, at Yale in uh, Connecticut and the uh, Bancroft Library at the University of Berkeley, but they're institutions. Um, so this first book is Granville Stewart's Montana As It Is, published in New York in 1865. And um, it's the first book on Montana, but published in New York, not in Montana. There may be 20 copies, maybe a few more, I doubt it, but somewhere in there in existence. And this is the original paper cover. Uh, I've owned about three of them over my uh, tenure, and uh, this is uh, the only one I've had with a, uh, the paper cover. This is uh, the first book printed in Montana at Virginia City in 1866 uh, by Professor Thomas Dimsdale, The Vigilantes of Montana. And uh, this book is the only one that was signed by a known 1860s vigilante, compliments of Nathaniel Pitt Langford, who was the first superintendent of uh, Yellowstone Park. I think this is the most amazing book in the whole group. It's A Trip to the States by J. Allen Hosmer. And it was published in Virginia City in 1867. And it was the first book, if I can find my notes, to be edited, written, printed, bound, and distributed. And young Hosmer was 15 years old, pictured on the left in this CDV. And his father, Hezekiah Hosmer, was the first Chief Justice of Montana, uh, an appointee of Abraham Lincoln. This book I consider the Gutenberg Bible of Montana, and it's the only one in private hands. And it has great lineage, it was sold up here in San Francisco in 1942, and it belonged to the Thomas W. Streeter collection, who was one of the great uh, book dealers in, uh, in, uh, in the West, or in, in the United States. Um, I did say this was the only one in private hands, and that there are nine known, right? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. This is... Um, Pencil Sketches of Montana by Alfred E. Matthews. It's a large folio book. I don't know, this is blue, or kind of a bluish purple, and this is super gold. It looks a little washed out here. Um, 
this is the first illustrated book on Montana. And it had 31 uh, stone lithographs, uh, which two are pictured on, on the far right, and uh, four fold-outs. Now this book by Charles Spencer Francis is Sport Among the Rockies and was published in 1889 in New York. And it was four professional men who came out west to, on a hunting and fishing expedition. Um, there were only 15 copies of this book known and it was filled with 48 albumin mounted photographs of which here are three and uh, uh, Ken if you want to say something but I'll just say something here this image here he did a series th th they were in Great Falls and then they went north uh, into Glacier Park and they had James Kipp uh, or Joe Kipp sorry his son Joe Kipp and James Roller Schultz the author, they were their guides. But this is the earliest known photograph of Glacier National Park. They went for, they came by railroad, Great Northern, to, uh, to Great Falls, and they hired Kip and several others to escort them on up to St. Mary's Lake. And so, you know, this was long before it became a a national park. Uh, Spencer was either was a very fine photographer. He had one with him. I don't, I'm not sure I which. Think, no, he was. He a was a photographer, and some of the photos uh, they're all outstanding quality. But one of them of white calf is just the most powerful Picture. image. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that book and its photos is, is a monumental treasure. And as Tom said, they only made enough for the members of the party and a, and a couple extra, but that was it. It didn't go to libraries. It didn't go spread around the country. And Tom was able to uh, put together a complete sport among the Rockies, which is a real coup. Go ahead. Thank you. Okay, I believe we are in uh, the last section, Historic Art. And uh, this is a, a William Carey Sepia Wash, uh, who was a noted Upper Missouri River uh, artist. And uh, Carey was a passenger on the 1861 steamboat Chippewa. And Years later, it was destined for uh, Fort Benton. And years later, um, one of his mates asked him to uh, illustrate an 1895 article on this iconic trip uh, for Recreation Magazine. So this is one of the only, this is the only known of the 13 original Cary drawings. Uh, this is the only one that we know of. And that, that, sir, it actually came out as a series of article in, articles in that publication, Recreation Magazine. And on that trip of the Chippewa, 
Major Shifflin had been along, and so Shifflin wrote the text, Carey provided the images, and the images included one that's so powerful, and that is of the Chippewa blowing up because one of the crewmen went down into the hold, knocked his lantern, his uh, candle over, and it caught fire, and there had been some kegs of gunpowder gun on board. Fortunately, it took a while for the fire to spread to the gunpowder, and they were able to, the pilot managed to land the boat, get the passengers off, and push the boat off to the, in, back into the Missouri. So it blew up in the Missouri with no passengers on board, but it's a spectacular scene that Carrie drew, along with a whole bunch of others on that trip. It, it's really something. But to have this original uh, painting of Kerry with some of the passengers from that steamboat coming on back down river to Fort Union. 150 miles. Is really something. So that steamboat, uh, can you know that they, what was the other steamboat that they added to? Everybody went on one steamboat. It had 250 tons of cargo, 350 kegs of gunpowder, and a lot of whiskey, illegal whiskey. And the, and the, the boat was just overcrowded with passengers. And there were only two fatalities. The original imbiber burned up, and then a poor dog whose owner called him up from his nap. He was on the second deck, and he never woke up. Sad. Okay, uh, here's a series of, I thought you might like, a series of uh, early uh, uh, images of the Great Falls. Uh, the Great Falls was, as you probably all know, was a major site well before Lewis and Clark made it uh, known to the colonies, but uh, Native American site. And I would hazard to believe I might be stepping on my tongue here, but I think the Great Falls of the Missouri was the most important site west of the Mississippi. And um, at least it was for the uh, tribes on the Missouri River. Um, this is the earliest known etching of Great Falls. Uh, it appeared in an 1817 Dublin edition of Lewis and Clark, and it was later reproduced in 1842 in another uh, Lewis and Clark. But I did research on this. Uh, I don't think I called you. I should have called you. Do you know of an earlier one? This is uh, Charles Savage. Uh, view 1868 of the Missouri and the uh, the first image was and I'll let Ken if you want to say something on on uh, well Huttons. Savage Savage was a Salt Lake City photographer and he came up to Montana Territory in 68 fortunately traveled fairly extensively around the state um, he came 
to Fort Benton, stopped at the falls on the way. He took a couple of photos in Fort Benton. Why he didn't take more, I don't know, but there are two outstanding uh, photos of the levee and the steamboat success because this was August and that was really late for steamboats in 1868 because they, they were still coming all the way from, from uh, St. Louis. But his photographs were outstanding quality and uh, we we're very fortunate he made the trip up from Salt Lake City. This is my favorite image of the Great Falls. This is by Joshua Chrisman. And uh, he took this in 1874. And Chrisman, uh, most people don't know it, but Chrisman was on the 1871 uh, Hayden Expedition that uh, next year they designated the first national park. And Chrisman was the first photographer to develop photographs of, of uh, Yellowstone Park. And I have a lovely collection of his stuff. Oh, this is William Henry Jackson's, uh, attributed to William, William Henry Jackson sometime in the 1870s. Lovely image. And this is F.J. Haynes, uh, the official photographer of the Northern Pacific, uh, or of Yellowstone uh, by the Northern Pacific Railroad. And uh, he took a lot of views of this from the steamboat Helena uh, in 1880. And this is Alfred Matthews from the Pencil Sketches of Montana. Here's his image, uh, the frontispiece for the book of the Great Falls. It's a fold-out. I wasn't going to flatten it out for you. I just showed you. I opened the book and photographed it. Okay, here's the baby. Here's the birth of Great Falls. Here's the original plat map for the proposed town of Great Falls, dated August 1883, drawn by Herbert Percy Rolfe. He was an engineer, he was a, an attorney, and he was a civil engineer. And he drew this at the secret bequest of J.J. Uh, Hill and Paris Gibson. Centrally, central plats were designated. He lived on a tent somewhere around here. Uh, Central Platts were designated to important people like uh, Montana's first governor, Sidney Edgerton, and Robert Vaughn, and Wilberfist Sanders, and Paris Gibson, and so on. And, uh, uh, oh, Rolf had married Edgerton's uh, daughter, Maddie, so there was a... This is the Missouri, going right through here. Now this is the original piece that was right here 147 years ago in a that? tent. Uh, that came from the Edgerton family in California. Um, they were selling their stuff, some stuff. Tom and I bid against each other for it, Tom won. <laughs> <laughs> but I think maybe Tom's going to find a way to uh, Bring it back to Great Falls. Is that is that rumor true? That rumor is uh, highly possible. I think it belongs it, here. It belongs in the History uh, Museum. Okay, next, please. Now these are great. So Rolf wrote to his wife Maddie. He crossed out Fort Benton, 
August 4th, 1883, and he wrote in Great Falls. This definitely is the first letter ever written from Great Falls. A week later, he wrote to Maddie, and that definitely is the second letter written from Great Falls. And I don't know, do we have time to quote a couple lines? I don't think so, but the, the romantic in Rolf made him sign one of the letters to his wife, Maddie, who was back in Fort Benton while Rolf was about where Black Eagle is with his survey camp for several weeks that summer, and he signed it with a thousand kisses, Herbert. <laughs> I'm very fortunate in, in uh, having been able to purchase an original collection of the Mullen uh, Road, Military Road. And this here is one of three CDVs in my collection. Uh, there are no other ones ever been known or available. And this is Mullen's, uh, this is Creighton. John Creighton was his head wagon master. And this is Mullen's, uh, uh, what do you call it, wagon train. And here is, I love diaries. Here is Creighton's diary on the Mullen Road. Unbelievable. That it's there, it lists, it lists uh, for the first time it lists his supplies that you know, he had to supply the different uh, road building crews. And it lists the supplies. That's, I've never found it anywhere else. And here is a baby too. They're all my babies. This is, this is the only known John Mullen letter written during the road building expedition camp on uh, the Bitterroot in 1860. Just think of the rarity of that. Uh, no public institution has a single letter written by John Mullen, Lieutenant Mullen, during his expedition in 1859-60 that went from Fort Walla Walla, 624 miles, to Fort Benton. Absolutely amazing. His writing is a task he, to he, decipher. He's tough. <laughs> this is a uh, steamboat memorabilia card, Hole for the Gold Fields. And um, this lists seven boats that left for the season from St. Louis to uh, Fort Benton. And when I bought this in Santa Fe, and uh, the dealer told me the price and I had to immediately find a seat. But however, I had looked at the card and I saw this G.A. Thompson. And I go, that goes along with my Thomas Francis Mark collection because that is the boat that was docked on July 1st, 1867 where Thomas Francis Mark fell off and was never seen again. And that's the, I, the distances uh, between St. Louis, it's quite interesting to see them. I have some amazing diaries. This is an 1867 uh, steamboat diary of the Columbia that came up river from Atchison to Fort Benton on a, uh, I can't remember what it was. It's a 105 page diary and it was a 2,500 mile low water trek, so it was a tedious 76 day trip. And the great part about this is that 
when they got to Omaha, they picked up, the diary says they picked up Father Pierre de Schmidt and took him upriver to Fort Rice, where he met and traveled as, uh, let's see, how old was he? He was 70-some years old. He took a arduous trip to Powder River to uh, sign a treaty with uh, Sitting Bull. And the one on the right is a uh, Overland Trail Diary by Thomas Holmes. And uh, his ox train, uh, 1864, so this is really early, it's in two volumes. His ox train consisted of 111 wagons, 227 uh, men, 17 women, 25 children, seven horses, 557 cattle, and plenty of chickens. You know, between 1862 and 1868, Six. 1866, uh, Fisk and Holmes led wagon trains that were promoted by the federal authorities. This was the, started during the Civil War, and there were Confederates and southern families leaving the border states like Missouri, Kentucky, and so on, and coming west. Many of them came up the Missouri River and settled in Montana Territory, the brand new territory. Well, the, the Union was concerned about the buildup of southerners in these western territories, so they organized these wagon trains, and between the eight trains, some 1,400 people came from Minnesota to Montana Territory by wagon train. And this is one of those trips told in that diary. It's really an important diary. And they left from Shakopee, Minnesota. And when they got into Dakota Territory, they ran smack into General Alfred Sully's major Indian campaign against the the Sioux, and the military was forced to babysit these uh, pioneers through battles all the way to Fort Union. They even built Fort Rice during this time. Now, two things occurred while this diary uh, was being written from the start to the end. The first was they were headed toward Idaho Territory, it's written in the front. But President Lincoln signed the bill in 18, May 26, 1864, to create Montana Territory. So that was a big, so they no longer were headed for, they're headed for Montana Territory. And plus, passerbys on the, on the river said, uh, told them that there was a gold strike at Last Chance Gulch. So they got to uh, they got to uh, Fort Benton three or four weeks later, and then two days later they stopped writing and they made a dash for Last Chance Gulch. <laughs> so the members of this letter saw the birth of Montana Territory. They went this these actual books went through multiple Indian fights and saw the birth of of uh, the gold field of Last Chance Gulch and of our third capital, Helena. So it's really an important uh, piece.
piece. Okay, here we have uh, Sir Thomas Francis Marr. And this is uh, an 1863 CDB of him um, uh, as he was leading the Irish Brigade during the Civil War. And to the right, in the Battle of Bull Run here, uh, in 1861, it was the first land battle in the Civil War. Uh, Marr, just like Custer, always led his men. He charged in front. He was charging the Confederates. Well, they shot his horse out from under him. He tumbled, and he was out of it. A private, uh, Joe, anyway, Joe, uh, can't remember his last name now, um, picked him up, put him over his horse, and brought him back behind Union lines and saved his life. In appreciation, Marr was a good friend of, of uh, Lincoln, and he asked Lincoln if he would uh, promote this private to his adjutant general, which is secretary or, or helper, and he did. He signed it, and uh, finding a... a I've looked for years, finding a, a Thomas Francis Marr document that relates to Montana is like finding a needle in uh, double hundreds of fields of haystacks. It's almost impossible today. And signed by Lincoln. <laughs> okay, this is a, a Marr, Thomas Francis Marr letter, and I'll try to do this short. Um, President uh, uh, Johnson appointed him, gave him a chance for an appointment as Secretary of Montana in 1865. He was on the, uh, the uh, what's the, uh, Fisk expedition in Minnesota going west when he got this telegram and he said, no, I'll take this, I'll take this appointment. So here he is writing as he's about to catch a stagecoach from Atchison, Kansas to Bannock, which he did. And uh, this is a four-page letter. He got to Bannock, and uh, I, I just have to say this. He said the only thing, and he's writing about the U.S. Senate to his uh, uh, Major O'Byrne, uh, his uh, Johnson's assistant, he says, the only thing they can entertain against me is my conviviality, but that, my dear Major, is knocked on the head. Devil, a drop of drink shall pass my lips until <laughs> Montana is a state. That you can swear. Oops. <laughs> and also in his enthusiasm, just one brief, uh, one brief statement where he is convinced that Montana will be as wealthy and as powerful as California, if not more so. He had never seen Montana. On the, on the oh. Charlie. This is a, a common photograph of, of Russell, but the interesting thing here is uh, this is hand-colored. And this was his last known photograph by Eklund, and uh, it, uh, it came from Fred and Ginger Renner's collection. Okay, here is a tintype of Robert Stewart. He was uh, uh, one of Russell's good buddies. 
as a kid. He was the son of Granville Stewart's brother James, and the uh, and was raised by Abani, a full-blood Shoshone who married Granville Stewart. And uh, years later, in 1907, he sent this uh, postcard to Russell that he wrote on the on the front. Uh, this looks like old times, Bob Stewart. This came from a book in Fred Renner's collection, and this came from the uh, Abbott family, so it's great to combine these two together for the first time. There's nothing like cradling a, a book written by Charlie Russell and published during the time he was alive. And this pen sketches is a suede copy. There were numerous covers on it, but this is a very rare copy. Um, and it's also in like new condition. And it sort of harkens back to that day in 1899 when this book first came out for sale on the streets of Great Falls, Central Avenue. And to the right is uh, Rawhide Rollins. And uh, that uh, is a combination of a businessman from Los Angeles who asked uh, Charles Milton, who asked Russell just a month or so before he died if he would autograph pencils, uh, Rawhide Rollins and more Rawhides, which are paperback books. I don't know if you've seen them. And then Middleton bound them together in, in this suede and presented them to friends around Los, uh, Los Angeles and, and uh, Santa Barbara with copies, uh, gifts for the summer of, uh, or the Christmas season. And these, uh, th there are two books in here. This is just one signature, but these are probably Russell's last known signatures on a, on a book. And incidentally, there are probably maybe three to four known copies of, of that. Here we have uh, Good Medicine. And uh, Good Medicine, as you probably all know, was uh, the brainchild of Nancy Russell, and it was a memorial, memorial to her husband where she uh, borrowed 155 illustrated Russell letters to put in the book. And the most desired edition of this book is one of 61 that were, uh, were given by Nancy Russell to people who had contributed letters. And uh, you can't find these anywhere. They were, uh, pr had presentations written in them by Nancy Russell and by Will Rogers. And this copy is from, uh, what's her name? <laughs> no. um, Nancy's sister, uh, Ella Ironsides. Okay, this is a three-page Russell letter, his longest autobiographical letter he ever wrote. This is the, only the signature page. And he wrote this to Guy Wiedek, the originator of the... Uh, of the Calgary Stampede, thank you. And um, this, uh, I'd like to end this part here with a classic story 
of uh, a movie star Bill Hart and his stuntman Jim Parker. And uh, this reminds me, Guy, did you ever see a fake photo of me riding a hoss? This hoss is so bad and crooked in reality, I couldn't ride him if he had handles all over him. <laughs> Saw a view of the movie folks last winter. Tom Mix, Doug Fairbanks, Neil Hart, Bill Hart, Dell, and Jim Parker. Jim is with the movies when the hero of the play is supposed to spur his horse off the cliff to save his sweetheart from a shark. Said hero lopes his horse within 50 yards of the rim. From then on, it's Jim's it. But boobs that paid their 30 cents don't know it. They say photos don't lie, but I know moving ones do. Where the hero quits, Jim steps across a horse that's locoed and as big a damn fool as the man that rides him and goes off into the sea. Jim's wearing the same rig as the hero. The people looking at the screen wonder at the nerve of the hero. They don't know that when Jim takes the brainless leap, Mr. Hero is sitting back of the cameraman in a cushioned Cadillac smoking a camel. <laughs> now, Russell, Russell had a way with phonetically spelling words. He spelled Cadillac C-A-T-A-L-A-C-K. <laughs> Okay, now we come to the fun parts of Russell. Or, I mean, these are fun, but... So, I'm sure many of you have heard of countless stories of regret from people whose parents or grandparents had uh, a visit from Russell and they had left a sketch on a piece of paper and uh, they, their regret is that they can't find it, <laughs> you know, 60 years later, 50 years later. Well, this is proof, and I often think a lot of those people weren't telling the, I think they were just saying, ah, I knew Russell, my parents knew Russell, and maybe a third of them did. But uh, this is proof of, of that, and on the left is a Russell sketch, self-portrait of Russell on his, uh, what was this, Monty. And this drawing was given from Russell to Charles Stewart, Granville's son, who gave it to Teddy Blue and, and, uh, and Mary Stewart, who in turn gave it to Dick Flood in 1962, and then yours truly has it now. And, you know, on the, on the scripts of paper, that he wrote on, you can tell the sample of this, he wrote it on a Ledger Day Journal on the back, and it's cut crooked. <laughs> on the right is a uh, uh, a photo of a six-horse uh, stagecoach that was, uh, I bought a copy of Rawhide Rollins in 1921, and it had Russell's book plate on it, which, uh, made it a sure thing that it was from Russell's library. And uh, I can't remember what I paid for, but it came from Georgia and it came in the mail and I opened it and this fell out, an original. Sometimes dumb luck, you know, is okay. And here's another uh, 
wonderful Russell sketch on the back of, you know, it's cut off. And here's, it's on the back of uh, some official letterhead that I'm sure came from Granville Stewart. And here's, notice the bunny leaving the... And here's another, um, my collection of Granville Stewart uh, images, uh, 20 or more of them, uh, they're from Russell or Granville Stewart, and these I just picked out a few of the Russells. But uh, you can kind of tell this talks Russell right here. There's a few early ones of charging uh, uh, Indian on horseback, and there are a few of early Russells. Th these are all from like 1883 when he was a kid and working at uh, the DHS with Granville Stewart. Again, this is an exciting. Uh, group of notes that are made public for the first time. Uh, in 1916, Jody Young, his deaf, uh, Russell's only mentor, artistic mentor, Jody Young, came to Great Falls and lived at 4th Avenue North for 10 years, off and on until his death, Russell's death. And uh, they communicated by, uh, because uh, uh, DeYoung was deaf from a childhood spinal meningitis uh, affliction. And so they communicated by writing notes. So here we have, this is just a few of them, but here we have, I can reconstruct their conversations from 1916 to 1920, 21. And it's just amazing because you can pick up household items and innuendos from the Russell household that no one has ever known before, except through these notes. So um, here, and you can identify the notes. They're not signed. You can only identify the notes by the handwriting. So this handwriting is Nancy to Joe, and it's a sign how Nancy always mothered Joe. You know, Joe was 22 years old, and um, I'll quote from this. I would just as soon as you would sleep upstairs, if you won't mind. Things piled all over the floor in every other place. I haven't straightened that room yet, but Charles doesn't mind if you stay in the cabin, only it is so much more lonely. I think I'd rather stay in the cabin, because that room upstairs on their house is really tiny. It's like a closet. Um, over here on the right, which I can't see, is, oh, that's a note from Nancy. And it goes, my brain is too weak to keep under the strain of real thoughts that must be had when I write to businessmen. Here Nancy's revealing uh, how hard it was for a woman, but for Nancy, to work with businessmen. It's kind of an interesting insight on, on her. And below that is, uh, oh, this is a good one. This is in Russell's handwriting. And he goes, fellow had, uh, Russell to Joe, fellow had better step easy around here this morning. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> and I think Russell was giving Joe a heads up of saying Nancy was in a sour <laughs> mood. 
And here, if you can see this, below is Russell's lovely handwriting and how he spells chimpanzee. <laughs> this on the upper right uh, was a note, uh, and this is just a Russell sketch amongst the notes. And over here, uh, in Nancy's handwriting to Joe, and uh, like a fellow wanted to paint on Indian camp with Roundup in back of it, to one side a buffalo hunt, a regular history on one canvas, in foreground an Indian girl dipping water from the stream. Here Nancy's explaining to Joe how a customer wanted to Russell to paint four paintings on one canvas. And <laughs> I wonder if anyone has that here. Norma? <laughs> okay, and below that is just a, a short note from uh, Russell to Joe, and he's referring to going back to the letter with where Neil Hart run his horse off the, uh, off the cliff, which I thought was interesting, because that's where I found out from my letter that that was Bill Hart as the actor. Okay, we come to the last one. Uh, last image. And I'll begin this final plate with a short backstory that speaks volumes on being a passionate collector and how serendipitously important material comes together and is passed on, or not passed on, from one generation to the next. Collectors don't own this material. We are just caretakers with the responsibility of preserving it. In the spring of 1984, while attending the annual Cowboy Artists of America fair in, uh, or show in, um, in Phoenix, I was invited by Fred and Ginger Renner to their, for a cocktail party, to their lovely uh, desert home in Paradise Valley. And it sat right under uh, a rock formation that was christened the praying monk. And uh, I arrive at the house and, you know, I'm, lots of people don't know anybody but Fred and Ginger. And uh, the house is filled with original watercolors, oils, and bronzes scattered all over the table in numerous rooms. And Fred catches my eye. And uh, he asked me if I would like to join him in his Russell Library. And uh, slowly we disengage from the crowd and we go down the hall and Fred plays show and tell with me for half hour or so, showing me all his Russell goodies. And that was the first time I had laid eyes on, on uh, this leather-bound copy of Agnes Lout's 1926 book, Blaze Trails of the Old Frontier, with this stunning watercolor gem that Russell tipped into it, had tipped into it, of a pagan warrior. I had noted 
he had noted that uh, there were only eight known extra illustrated Russell books. Fred owned two of them, but this was his last one, 1926, if I didn't say that. Nancy Russell presented this, uh, Charlie was too sick, up in Glacier Park to the great Northern president, Ralph Budd, and uh, just a few months before Charlie died, of course. And at that very moment, Ginger peeked into the library and, uh, and reminded Fred that there were other guests <laughs> and that he was the host. And she left immediately because we said we'd be there. And so like scolded kids, Fred and I walk down the hall and he glances at his watch and he goes, I'll meet you back here in an hour. He had a <laughs> twinkle in his eye. Never did I think that this precious volume would grace a shelf in my library. But just under 30 years later, thanks to Ginger, um, there it resides today. Thank you. Thank you.